and welcome back to MFA Writers. I'm super excited to have you here today. Before we get to my conversation with Jonathan Escoffery, I wanted to remind you all that we've got a couple of free copies of his debut book, If I Survive You, available to listeners thanks to MCD Books and FSG. This is a fantastic debut that I've been recommending to everyone I know, and this is your chance to get a copy. However, time is getting short to enter for a chance to win one. The giveaway ends tonight, Tuesday, November 22nd, 2022 at midnight. You can enter on Twitter and Instagram, just go to each and follow the instructions. And you can also enter by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts, then sending us a screenshot to mfawriterspodcast at gmail.com. You're welcome to enter once each for three chances to win. We'll announce the winners on our social media accounts tomorrow. Good luck. You can find MFA Writers on Instagram and Twitter as well as mfawriters.com. We'd love to hear from listeners, so feel free to shoot us a direct message on one of those platforms or an email at mfawriterspodcast at gmail.com. And if you have a minute to rate or review the show, the best place to do that is on Apple Podcasts. Doing so will help boost our podcast as we try to boost these amazing writers. Also, if you or someone you know would like to be a guest on the show, you can apply at mfawriters.com. On that same website, you can also click the support button to support us financially, if it's within your means. Or you can do so by going directly to buymeacoffee.com slash mfawriters. Finally, as always, thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoy the episode. podcast where we talk to creative writing MFA students about their program, their process, and a piece they're working on. I'm your host, Jared McCormick. Today, we've got a special episode for you with Jonathan Escoffrey, the debut author behind the super successful short story collection, If I Survive You, which was long listed for the National Book Award and the Andrew Carnegie Medal for Excellence, and was a finalist for the Southern Book Prize and a Golden Poppy Award. It is published in the U.S. by MCD and FSG. Jonathan is a graduate of the University of Minnesota's Creative Writing MFA program and currently attends the University of Southern California's PhD in Creative Writing and Literature program as a provost fellow. On top of that, he's a 2021-2023 Wallace Stegner Fellow at Stanford University. Before we chat, Jonathan is going to read an excerpt for us from his debut book. Yes, um, I'm going to be reading from the story Splashdown which happens to appear about halfway through the book. Um, And I'm actually reading from the second section in the story. So this is section two. And I know that might be a little bit uh, random in terms of choices for for reading, but I think this passage speaks to the theme of uh, father-son relationships, which is a kind of running thread throughout the book. Um, and so I'll, I'll take it from here. And this is from, um, this story follows the character Cookie, who met his father for the first time the summer he turned, uh, 13. And, um, they, this is picking up after they've had a falling out and haven't spoken for years. His baby boy had emerged, slippery and screaming into the world, when the panic began blooming inside Cookie. They'd agreed on Julius, after Leanne's grandfather, and once Julius had been wiped clean, swaddled in the hospital blanket, handed to Leanne, exhausted, red-faced in spite of her brown skin, she'd had the wherewithal, after minutes of staring, of breathing him in, to spin Julius toward Cookie, saying, "Look." your nose. But Cookie had already recognized it, like an arrowhead glued to a sapling. Of the anxieties Cookie had brought into the delivery room, passing down his least cherished feature had not been one. He had, of course, considered whose face he'd eventually come to see in his sons, his or the Anne's, or some near even split, or else neither, though Cookie figured that would reveal itself over years months at the earliest. Among his anxieties, he had recently dreamed that Baptist staff had misplaced Julius in a ward of indistinguishable newborns, as all newborns to him had been indistinguishable up to this point, and that Julius would never be recovered with any certainty. 
Chief among his anxieties had been the money, that there wasn't any. Now, though, his boy appeared fated, as he himself had been fated, to see his father everywhere he saw himself. Leanne lifted Julius for Cookie to take, and Cookie edged toward the door, saying, I'll be back. You'll be back? Cookie heard Leanne ask, though he was already making his way down the hall, dropping his grubs on the hospital floor. It wasn't until Cookie saw his boy's face that he knew he would have to do something drastic to save his family from destitution. He's just turned off US-1 onto the bridge that will lift him over the hem of the Atlantic and after a mile or so, land him in the midst of Smuggler's Key for the first time in four years. Every once in a while, he takes his sight off the asphalt in front of him and pushes it over the aluminum rail to search out fishing vessels down in the water. Not seeing many, he thinks there's still time. His headlights are becoming unnecessary as night recedes, his truck's nose already dipping towards smugglers. He's rehearsing greetings for when he pulls up to his father's tiki bar. Hey, Pop. Or, remember me, deadbeat? He's got to play it cool, though, to humble himself. He practices the words. Do you have any work for me? Work I can fall back on? And I'll stop reading there. All right, Jonathan, I appreciate it. Thanks for reading. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. So I'm sure you've heard this a million times by now, but this is an incredible book. Really. I mean, Thank I, you. I, I, I loved it. No, I no, no author no author can get tired of hearing that. <laughs> <laughs> Good. <laughs> All right. Well, I was totally enthralled by it. Not just like the story you're telling, which is, of course, really engrossing and moving and saying something really important, but I was also interested in the form of the book. In your bio, I called it a collection of short stories, but I mean, I, I suppose that's what it is since you could pull any of these out and like read them on their own and they would work. But together, the stories read like chapters in a novel. I also noticed that it doesn't say on the front of the book, a novel or stories, which most books will have that kind of in small <laughs> print there. So, so how do right, you think right. of this book? Would you call it a collection or a novel or would you just prefer to forget the labels? I think I'd, I'd prefer to forget the labels personally, just thinking about the, the different ways that the, 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 I was about to say that the novel came to be, I mean, that the <laughs> book uh, came to be because at times, honestly, I thought I was working on a novel. And then at other times I thought I was working on a, a link story collection um, or even times, you know, it was, it was a much less linked story collection. Um, but I, I became, I, I knew I had a book once I realized the, the kind of world that I was building out with these different characters and these different members of the family, um, Cookie, who I was reading about, uh, you know, a minute ago, he's the cousin character of, uh, Trelawney and Delano, who both of whom get probably more page and stage time in the book. Um, but you know, with, with the larger narrative following this family, I mean, I think that's the thing I was interested in, but you know, the people who've talked about the book or written about the book, they're calling it a novel, they're calling it stories. <laughs> and, you know, part of, you know, part of that, we set it up that way by not putting a subtitle on the, on the, uh, cover, I think, but also, as you said, the way it reads, it, you know, it kind of operates as both. And maybe I wanted to have, you know, the best of both worlds or, or have, you know, have it both ways, I guess is uh, right. another way to put it. Yeah, nothing wrong with a little ambiguity. So how did it start? Because you said like there were times that you thought of you were writing a novel. So sometimes you thought you were writing a story collection. Did you think from the very beginning you were going to write a longer work? Or did you write in one of these short stories and then realize there was more to be told? I was, I was actually preparing my writing sample for uh, applications for MFA programs and um, a story. I actually thought I had my writing sample set. <laughs> uh, I was meeting with two of my closest friends who were both also applying to MFA programs. And around November 15th, we were meeting just to exchange work. And um, a little bit before we met, this story kind of poured out of me that I, I, it was the only story I've ever sat down and just written in, you know, a few hours basically. And it was a story about Jelani and Delano and Topper and their um, difficulties around the living situation with Delano and Jelani. And that is the difficulty being that Delano hasn't been paying his rent um, and Topper, the father wants Jelani, the younger brother to do something about it. And 
um, I was interested in kind of exploring this difficult situation between these family members that in a sense is kind of impossible because, you know, Delano is not paying his rent, but the father kind of favors him and refuses to do anything about it, refuses to evict him. And yet he's putting the responsibility back onto uh, the younger son, the, the other roommate, in a sense, the other tenant. And um, I, I thought just the story, it was, it was very short, again, like five pages, but I thought it was really full of life in a way that some of my earlier writing <laughs> might have been lacking. Or, or maybe I was just, you know, I was a lot more interested in these characters in this story. And so I wound up writing that, showing my friends, they had a really enthusiastic response to it. So I wound up submitting that to um, my, well, to the University of Minnesota, where I wound up attending and, and to some other programs that I, I that I did and didn't get into. But um, I started to think of this story that I wrote as a kind of chapter one to a novel. And I really believe that that's how it was going to wind up in a, in a future book. And, and so I started to write, you know, chapter two. And I was, it was immediately following the, the, the brother character, Delano. Um, and I was, I was exploring, I was trying to explore like all of the characters who had uh, popped up in this very short um, writing sample, opening chapter, story, whatever, <laughs> whatever it was. And I really had a difficult time writing forward that way. And I, I really had to kind of step away from the idea that this was going to be a novel that was going to start where that story started. And I, I needed to kind of step back and start exploring these characters in, in different ways. Um, but but for, a, for a very long time, I really thought I was writing a novel that I did want all of the chapters to stand alone. Um, I, I don't know why that was so important <laughs> to me, but it, it, I felt like, well, if I'm going to write a novel, I, it should be like the perfect novel that could be excertable. I think, I think to my credit, I think I had um, an idea that it would be helpful to my career if I could pull pieces out of the book and start placing those at magazines to start, you know, building some kind of uh, presence in the, the the literary world. So you mentioned that when you wrote that initial piece, it had like an energy that your other work didn't have. I'm curious to hear you talk about why you think that was. I write fiction as well. I get, I get tired of people reading the stuff I write and just assuming it's me in the story and that it's like based on my real <laughs> life. But so I don't want to like draw any con conclusions about this book and your own actual lived experience. But it seems like there's some influence coming from your own life and upbringing. You know, the main character, Trelawney, also grew up in Miami, studied English in college. So I don't know, was this the first time that some of those aspects of your life were finding their way into your work? Do you think that influenced the energy of it? That's true, I think. Yes. <laughs> um, you know, I was writing, before that, I was writing stories that were set in places that I hadn't spent much time um, or, you know, I was focusing on more a more plot driven fiction that was kind of independent of the characters that were being plugged into these storylines and maybe that was around the first time i was i was like the the conflict was coming directly out of these characters and who they were um but then they were also characters who were very close to you know my identity my my lived experience um and you know, there, it was also the first time, among the first times where I was writing about just difficult situations that don't have easy answers and um, about family in a way that I just, I, I find family to be the, the unsolvable problem because <laughs> you, you just can't like, or maybe, maybe I'd have a different answer if I sought therapy, but, <laughs> but my therapy is, is in the writing, I think. But um you know, like, how do you solve a problem? Like being in a family where you have one sibling and that sibling is the favorite and you're kind of not. And it's like, what do you, what can you actually do about such a thing? Um, but, you know, my job as the author was to try to make that compelling on the, on the page. And actually, I also, it was the first time I wrote a story that I thought was incredibly funny. Um, and my, my first readers had that same response. And I think I'd kind of broken out of this idea that, 
to be a serious writer, I had to write something that felt like very serious. And, you know, the, the, the topics were serious, but it was delivered in a way that was, was biting and, and humorous. Um, and I wanted to continue to uh, search, seek out that energy, um, which was another thing that was very difficult because I'd written this opening again, like quote unquote chapter that uh, I, I, I knew it was kind of funny. Like even, even in talking to my advisors, once I, I got into the MFA and they were like, you wrote, you, you can write humor like really well. And that was, so I felt the pressure of that. Like, how am I going to now sustain um, humor throughout an entire book. Yeah. Like, how do you do that? I'm not even sure where the humor was coming from. You know, I hadn't been at the time at least. Um, and so it was very easy to get in my head with uh, a lot of expectations that I was setting up for myself that, and that made it kind of difficult. Um, so I, again, I had to kind of step away and just think about, well, you wrote that story. Can you, can you just write another story, another good story, maybe a better story <laughs> and just start taking it from there and see, do, do you understand these different uh, modes of storytelling? And, and through that process, that was, that was really helpful. So I've heard from other writers, specifically emerging writers and MFA programs about this issue of expectation. They get in these programs and they feel like there are certain expectations they have to live up to or, or they publish that first story and suddenly it's like, oh man, now I have to write the next one, right? Which seems like it should, like once you figured it out, the next one should come easy, right? But it doesn't work like that, right? It's still a lot of hard work. So how did you manage those expectations? How did you get over that and get back to just like the basics and just trying to write a good story again? Yeah, that's a good question. <laughs> um, deadlines helped. I mean, if, if there was anything that was really, in, in terms of the MFA, in terms of a graduate program helping me um, get this book written insofar as it did, those deadlines were, were really helpful because I, I would spin my wheels for a long time and then I was... I was the person who wrote stories uh, like overnight, right before class. <laughs> and um, so, so there's the story, it, it appears um, it's the penultimate story in the collection, which is told from uh, Delano, the older brother's point of view. Um, they used to be called The Bucket. And then I changed the name right before I sent it to American Short Fiction and made it like a long, playful name. Um, that I can almost never remember. It's like, if, if he suspected he'd get someone killed this morning, Delano would never leave the couch there. I, yeah, I did remember. Yeah, you did. <laughs> <laughs> but that's one where it's like, I, you know, I didn't go to sleep the night before and I, I just wrote like, uh, I don't know, what, 25 pages somehow. And it had the, it had the movements. And I think the only reason I could do that was because that's one of the stories in the book that does kind of have a, a clear um, movement that suggests like structured plots, I, I guess. Um, Delano has to go to like three places in order to fulfill the goal that he has set out. Um, and, and I think knowing that, that, that created um, a, a writerly momentum where I, I knew, well, you have to get him into this garage where he has to steal his truck back. You have to get him to convince these workers to come do the job. You have to convince the property manager to give you the bid that's going to allow you to work on her trees before this hurricane hits and, and that kind of thing. Um, which is me uh, getting a little bit outside of the question, the question, but those, those deadlines really, uh, really helped. The pressure never came off until I was finished with my, my MFA program. And then I had to figure out how to just be a human in the world again. And, and, get a job and and still figure out how to find time to write, which was very difficult, but nobody was really looking. Um, no one was really looking for the stories. And, and to me, that's really when the, uh, that's when the pressure came off and this, the writing really started to flourish. Interesting. So, I mean, like in my experience, writer's block is often like, it's often just about having too high of expectations when you're sitting down and trying to draft a story. It's like, I expect the story to be perfect, like as it comes from my fingertips to the keyboard, right? <laughs> and like yeah. when it's not perfect, then I get stuck. So it's interesting to hear like having the deadlines where it's like, well, I don't have any choice. I have to get this thing done in the next few hours. So I just got to push through this this draft and get it done. 
but then you when you got out of the MFA program, not having those deadlines, having that free space also freed something up. So it's interesting. It's like mm-hmm. it's like every yeah. time you try to like articulate a process or articulate how to do this the right way, it's like there's a, immediately a contradiction, I think. Absolutely. Yeah. That's one of the hardest things about this, this whole thing. I think there was a movement from, and possibly this happened in the MFA. If not, it would have been kind of closely after I finished the program, but uh, the movement from believing that it's easier to write a first draft than it is to revise one. I remember, I mean, I could vaguely basically remember back when I used to think writing a first draft was was not easy, <laughs> not easy at all, but easier. Um, it felt like, you know, once it was written, it, it, you know, it must have been written the right way. And so changing things felt very painful to me once upon a time. And now it's the exact opposite. Like, I don't even think I know what the story is until I start revising that first draft. Um, the first draft is just kind of, getting ideas out on the page and it's when you come in with that revision the editor who who starts to organize things and see hey or say hey like this is the interesting part here's the heart of it here's where things need to switch around here's how we can shape this um i mean the only thing i think that's good about expectations maybe is when you know that you want to um try something new on the page for for me i never want to write the same story twice or write a story. Like, it's like once I know how I figured out how to tell a certain kind of story, like I'm not super interested in revisiting that, uh, that mode of storytelling. Well, let's talk about that a little bit because, you know, the overall form of the book is really interesting, but also each individual story takes some interesting risks. So like, as I mentioned, the, the main character Trelawney gets a lot of time on the page, right? But there's also stories that focus on his father, his brother, and his cousin, um, like the story you read from. The stories mostly move forward chronologically, but they overlap at times. Some stories are in first or third person, while others are in second person. They're sometimes told in past or present or future tense. So I'm, I'm curious about your process when writing an individual story. So like, how do you decide to make some of those decisions? Or is it less about making a decision to do those things and more about just playing around until something clicks. There's a lot of play at hand, I think. Um, I mean, I know, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, you know, this, and this play in a way that's like, okay, I read Michael Ondaatje's running in the family. um, And which is a kind of, it's a, it's a memoir, but he is filling in all of this information that he just doesn't have. And so there's at times fictionalization and the narrative in that book is often interrupted uh, by a different narrative that comes in. And he's, the author is interrupting himself. Uh, William Maxwell's So Long See You Tomorrow does a lot of that. And so when I was writing a story like Pestilence, Pestilence is told in that retrospective first person, past tense, um, uh, story narrative mode. And, uh, you know, that was me coming in and saying, like, I love that kind of storytelling. Like, let me see if I can actually pull off that kind of storytelling. And um, bridging those those uh, influences and that kind of those inspirations. I'm, I'm, I'm the worst storyteller in my family. Um, I'm like, I might be the best, I might be the best writer in my family, but I'm the worst storyteller. And so if you get my family around a, a kitchen table, like the way they tell stories, it's, it's, to me, it's really engaging, entertaining, lots of humor, but you'll hear the same stories over the years, which is, you know, that's just how family is. Yeah. right? Um, and, but the stories you'll notice, they'll, they'll change depending on yeah. you know the size of the audience or or maybe they know maybe they recognize they've been telling the story for years so now they're amping it up they're exaggerating <laughs> things um or just depending on the the mood like sometimes you'll hear a story and it's really humorous it's really funny and then you might hear that story another time and there's one piece of information or maybe just the tone it's told in it's actually like a tragic story and so i, I wanted to I, I wanted to um in a way like pay homage to to the, the, the ways sto- families um family oral storytelling can play out and shift and the different things that we learn i mean some i know uh, even 
after my, so my, my, my dad died a couple months ago and I just, I, I had dinner with uh, his sister, my aunt, uh, a few weeks back. And she was telling me a story that he told me all these different times. And it's like, I'd heard it in like five different ways just from my dad, but then hearing it from his sister was, you know, a totally different way. And, and, and there were new pieces of information. And I just love the way a story can evolve. And so, you know, in my own writing in that, in uh, using that story pestilence as an example, like thinking about the way story evolves um, and, and for us writers, like the way a story can evolve within itself, um, the way you can uh, supply multiple versions of a story within the same story and, um, you know, hopefully pull that off in a way that's actually satisfying to a, to a reader. And, and we learn uh, a lot about storytelling. We learn a lot about hu- uh, humanity, hopefully. And so, you know, I, just depending on what I'm finding kind of interesting um, at a given time, like that's what I'm bringing to the the page. Um, and I, I knew just to stick with that story, like I was imagining Trelawney basically like we meet him at all these different moments of crisis throughout the book. Um, so, so for listeners who haven't read the book, Trelawney has a, a kind of major falling out with his father. He's kicked out of the house. He starts living out of his vehicle. He starts taking on really odd jobs. So we follow him on these different jobs and I, I was imagining him being in these difficult situations, but he's also still got the family dynamics going on. And so I wanted to write a story that was him really trying to unpack like what what set him up to have this uh, strained family or these strained family dynamics between his, his brother and his father. And so, uh, you know, that's another that was another motivation for that particular uh, retrospective first person narrative mode. What do you think the benefit was to branching out and telling stories kind of from the perspective of these other family members? Because I mean, I was reading Mm -hmm. it and I kept thinking like, Jonathan could have written an entire novel just focusing on Trelawney and it would have been amazing. But like getting these different perspectives to me adds something. And I'm curious to hear like what your thought process was in doing that. Yeah, um, particularly with Trelawney's father, Topper, and um, his brother, Delano. Delano came first. I, I knew because there were these tensions with them. Uh, I, I already knew there was going to be the tensions of them living in the house and kind of fighting over who has more uh, of a claim to the house. Delano has lived there longer. He he literally helped put the, the roof back on the house after Hurricane Andrew blew it off. But at the same time, Delano hasn't been paying rent for years and Shalani has stepped in and he's been the only one kind of paying his his share of the rent slash mortgage um, with their their father being the, the owner of the house. And knowing that they had these tensions, I wanted to give Delano his say, basically, because I, I didn't want him to be cast like only in the this kind of villainous position that Trelawney can sometimes um, cast him in. And, and, and similar, I mean, the same could be said for, for Topper um, with that major tension between uh, that father son tension. I, I wanted to give Topper his uh, own story because I mean, he's, he's not the most present. I, I, I try to avoid the words like good and bad, <laughs> but like, he's not the most present father when these boys are children and he's not the most present husband, particularly once uh, the family moves from Jamaica to Miami. And so I wanted to give him his point of view. So we see like, well, what's, what's he thinking? Like, why does he think what he does is okay? What's the, what's, what are his motivations? Um, What are the larger systemic issues that are maybe putting pressure on him to, you know, try to seek employment, out in these social settings late at night that are keeping him from being home with his family. Um, you know, how is this, uh, how is our economic system that has very few social nets setting him up to be, you know, a, a kind of poor father, poor husband. And, and so I wanted to explore that. So, you know, it's almost like me saying I wanted to be fair to those other characters. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I, I mean, one other thing like Delano, he, in Chelani's eyes, he is, he can't lose. And it's like, in most of the stories, he, he can't, he's like, he's, he's up uh, in all these different ways, but 
I wanted to focus on him when he was down. Like, what does it look like for Delano, the family favorite, the person who everybody likes when he's down and out? Like, what does that look like? So I also want to talk a bit about your journey to this moment, having released your debut book to some much deserved praise and success. A lot of our listeners are emerging writers who are in creative writing programs or applying to MFAs. You've been in their shoes. You've attended an MFA and a PhD in creative writing. So I'm curious what message or advice you have for those listening who hope to get where you are one day. Or in other words, what would you say to a younger Jonathan Escoffrey just entering the MFA program at Minnesota? I would say be patient, be as patient as possible. Um, I definitely felt that I that I needed to um, publish or start publishing right away. I don't know. I had these expectations. I mean, one simple one that I've heard from a lot of faculty, I'd, I'd been told myself, like, don't expect to have a finished book by the end of this program. Um, a better goal might to be might be to understand like what kind of artist are you trying to be or what kind of artist are you are you striving to be um figuring out your uh your your interests or you know what it is that you're going to be um writing about in the the near future or the or in the, the long term like trying to figure out what what it is exactly that is going to drive you and keep you engaged as a as a writer figuring out you know your 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 project, not in a, a specific way, like you necessarily know the book, but you know, when I, I've, I've been talking a bit about like father son relationships or another thing, um, it was, it was pivotal to me to, to start understanding that I wanted to actually talk about, um, the Jamaican American experience or a, and Jamaican, a Jamaican American experience, uh, you know, writing about Miami became like really valuable to me. And that was valuable to me once I moved away. I mean, in particular, when I moved away from Miami, I was able to kind of contrast it to, to places, not Miami. <laughs> and so, you know, being a little bit patient, but you know, there are, there are other things that are, I think more tangible, which is, um, I would say read, read a lot, read widely, but also read in, in terms of people who you think might be in conversation with your work. Cause that's going to teach you a lot about what can, and I mean, what can be done, um, successfully in terms of, uh, subject matter, or maybe even your writing style. Uh, I think something that was super helpful to me was joining the staff of, my MFA's literary journal. So I joined as the fiction editor. And so being able to see what people were submitting, especially in mass and seeing like, okay, I only have so much pay. You as the person who's receiving those uh, submissions, you only have so much patience, you only have so much time. And so like a really meandering open in page or vague um, open in page, stories that aren't grounded in character or place or uh, uh, time or, or, or conflict. If, if you're still searching for like, what is this by page two, editors don't have time to, to kind of figure that out. And, and so that taught me a lot about how I needed to be thinking about my own work that I was going to be submitting. Um, I, I'd say, you know, some of us, probably all of us have uh, weaknesses in our writing and, you're bound to have people point that out in workshop. But for me, I, I think it's really helpful to lean into your strengths and um, figure out what, what it is that you're, you're good at and you enjoy doing and just like do more of that, <laughs> which I'm sure there's some good advice for, for why you want to still um, get stronger at those, those, uh, those weaknesses. But, you know, if you're, I, I, I think if you're always chasing, like trying to, trying to be like so well-rounded like you can forget about that thing that you already kind of do really well you can, you can forget about that muscle so so i would lean into those strengths and i i think the maybe the last thing i'll say for now is we sometimes when you're you're surrounded by i don't know like 10 people 20 people 30 people you, you start to think that that's your entire world um and and that that's going to be your, your entire world forever in a sense, <laughs> even though, you know, you're in a two year program or a three year program, like somehow you, you're still, it's, it's very easy to start to believe that the entire world, um, what those, those other students and professors around you value is like the only things that can be valued or, or should be valued. And there's such a, a, a bigger 
world out there. Uh, and, and, and so understanding, you know, hopefully you found your way into a program that actually does value what you do. But, you know, it always breaks my heart to hear writers say, like, I quit writing because those four other writers in my cohort didn't value what I do. And yeah. it's like, you know, if you let the those few other people who happen to not necessarily get what it is that you're working towards um it could be helpful to already have some authors in mind who who probably would be your ideal readers because your 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 work is in conversation but i mean the other the other angle on that i think is sometimes i like i know after my maybe after year one some of the advice i got that didn't immediately resonate started to make more sense a couple of years down the road or even you know back when i was still hanging on to my feedback letters uh, you know maybe a year after i'd finished my mfa you know some of it again it started to make more sense to me and i so i i think you know if you could be kind to your classmates in terms of their uh you know your critique of their work Sometimes it's like a it's like a relationship, but they say it, like you can be happy or you could be right sometimes. Yeah, right. And you know, I think fighting to like eviscerate your your classmate because you you have a point that you really really need to dig in. It's like is it? It's sometimes it's not really worth it to do that. Sometimes it's actually better just to build community and with among people who, um, you know, they might be uh, an editor at a place you want to get published someday or. Um, or they might go on to be a, a good reader for you uh, of your work. Or there's just lots of different ways where it's just it's always better. I've found <laughs> to be uh, to, to be kind. And then you know my, my, the point I was making before is like sometimes you don't get someone's feedback, and that doesn't necessarily make them a a, a bad like person (laughs) (laughs) who you have to write write off just because they didn't get that one story that one time and sometimes that feedback they gave actually is good you just weren't ready to hear it and so you know just try to give yourself grace and give your classmates grace yeah i think that's good advice and it's good to keep in mind that each person who reads your work is just one reader and that goes for classmates or professors or uh editors at literary magazines right just because you Mm -hmm get a rejection doesn't mean your story's bad. It's just, it's just one reader and there's so many other variables that go into it. Right. Right. So that's, you know, that's one side of, you know, the community that, that you end up in when you go into one of these programs and there are some pitfalls in being in those communities, but I'm also curious to hear what kind of benefits you feel you've gotten over the years from the writing communities that you've been involved in, because you've been in an MFA program, a PhD, you've done various residencies, fellowships, so how important has community been to your success as a writer? Yeah, you know, it's it's been really helpful. And I'll say, I mean, one of the things that I, I don't know if I, I, I regret it, but again, thinking about the MFA or any grad program as your, the entirety of your world um, is probably not the best idea. For me, it was really helpful to do like, uh, like bread loaf thinking of summer conferences. Uh, I'm also a Cambilio Fiction Fellow, which is a, I mean, they do something like much, it's like a scaled down version, but there are these different fellowships that are identity-based. So Cambilio Fiction is for writers of the African diaspora. And these, these different summer conferences or summer workshops can be really helpful to building community in a way that gives you, I think, a, a broader perspective on the literary landscape. Uh, a place like Breadloaf gives you the opportunity to actually talk one-on-one with editors and agents. Um, it puts you into proximity with a lot of writers who are doing interesting things all around the country um, as people are people who live, writers who live all over the country converge on this one place for uh, seven or 10 days. And when I did Breadloaf, I, I did the work study waiter scholarship and i'm still in touch that was uh four years ago now and you know i'm still very much in touch with those people a lot more so than uh i am in touch with people from my mfa and so many of my like my cohort at Breadloaf, um at least half of them have come out with books and they've been able to give me really crucial feedback uh, in terms of 
And I said feedback, but I mean like advice, like and I'm not talking about advice on my writing. I'm talking about like when it's time to go on book tour, like how do you, how do you actually like manage all these airports and how do you actually conserve energy? And, uh, you know, I've gotten good advice, you know, you know, get, get your TSA pre-check, get your, <laughs> do the, do the clear service where you, you know, you just walk up and scan your eyes, and get on your plane. Basically I, I it's, it's been helpful to submit to magazines, uh, submit stories to magazines that have a local presence um, something that I like to think about when, in terms of submissions, is like how many, how many different um, positive outcomes can I get from one submission? So, Ziziva is is uh, located in San Francisco. I live in Oakland, so I live right next door, and they're the type of community that uh, puts on a lot of reading. So I've I've, I've read several times with uh, with Ziziva. Which, when you show up for these readings, oftentimes you're meeting other writers and you're connecting with them. And some of those writers, or or non-writers for that matter, are editors at other magazines that you might be interested in having your work featured in. And oftentimes, those editors they'll hear what you read and like it, and then they'll reach out to you. And now you, you can skip the slush pile, um, which means your work starts to get picked up a lot quicker. You know, other magazines have things like classes or, or they're associated with conferences. They might um, reach out to you to teach classes. They, they might have more benefits than just the one publication. Because the thing is that, like, to me, the saddest thing is putting my story out in a magazine and then kind of never hearing anything um, about it again. Um, so making sure magazines are actively nominating for things like Pushcart or submitting stories for Best American Short Stories or, you know, other other genres have their versions, Best American Poetry and all that. Or some of the magazines have internal award systems. So um, like Prairie Schooner has an annual, annually they award um, a good percentage of the people who, who who are contributors to their magazines. And so so that's one where... You know, a year after I published, I was notified that I won an award and there was money attached to it. And that's always a great thing because you get money. <laughs> then you, you can also put that award on your CV or whatever. You get more attention, you know, tweet it out or whatever, put it on IG. Um, the Parish Reviews, you know, another one that has its, um, I mean, that was like a really, uh, my, my career took off as a result of the Parish Review publication and then the Punton Prize, which um, I, I won a year after I published there, and um, whenever you can get that 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 two for, yeah. <laughs> two for the price of one story, <laughs> um, to me, like those are the places that you you want to be submitting your work. Once it's time to start submitting your work, once you actually feel like okay, I've 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 written the thing, I've revised it, I've shown it to people, I've stepped away from it, I've come back to it. There's nothing I would change. Like that's when you you really want to start submitting your work. So you you mentioned briefly navigating the world of being a published author, and I, I wanted to ask you about this because, like this season on the podcast, we've been asking our guests who are mostly current MFA students to tell us one way in which the MFA experience has been different, for better or for worse, from their expectations when applying. So I wanted to ask you a slightly different version of this, which is what is one way in which the publishing experience, having published a book has been different for better or for worse from your expectations when you first started sending out writing? It's really difficult to know what is going to feel like um, a success, I think. So, so I mean, here, here, here's the thing, right? You, it, and this is directly related to my experience of getting the book published, but when you're going the traditional publishing route, t- typically you have an agent, and your agent goes on submission to a bunch of publishers, a bunch of editors. And after you, however, you wind up um, agreeing to a deal, <laughs> whether that's, you know, you get some kind of preempts, you, you, you have a big auction, whatever it is, after the excitement of that, things get really, really quiet. And it's almost like depressingly so. <laughs> and I've talked to other authors and it's like, there's this huge up for, and for, for every, and I'll say this for, for every real success for every high a low follows and and part of that might be you know you're you're adjusting to the new normal but then you start you know eventually you do start hearing from people <laughs> you start hearing from your your uh, publishing team 
and you start getting closer to publication date. And it's, it's just really difficult to know what's going to feel like, okay, this is, this is it. I've arrived. <laughs> it, it, it might actually be your, you know, your book launch. If you, if you even do a book launch at a, a you know, typically a bookstore or somewhere that's willing to carry your book, but it might not be, it might not be then you may actually never have that feeling. Um, and I've had a lot of, um, press hits, a lot of media hits, and some of them have felt like, Oh yeah, that was, that was all right. And then <laughs> some of them have felt like, you know, it's, it's, to me, it's like always the surprising ones that I, I like the most. Um, it's the ones that I, I never really anticipated. Um, those are always the funnest, uh, kind of surprises where it's like, okay, all right, this is, <laughs> this author thing is, it's not so bad. Um, <laughs> it's, it's kind of cool, but you just, it's, I, I found it. And in talking to other people with books, um, especially talking to a lot of debut authors, uh, 2022 debuts, um, it's just, it's really hard to know because there really is no finish line. That's, I mean, that's, that was kind of a surprising thing. And you're still like waiting. I think this is just human nature that you're still kind of waiting on something and you, that thing, <laughs> that thing may, may never actually arrive. And I think what that thing is actually is once the promo, uh, quiets down a little bit, it's like you, you're surprisingly waiting for things to be quiet. So you can just start working on your next project. Um, and maybe that's the finish line that I'm looking forward to. So What's the publicity tour been like? I mean, I imagine you've done like a million interviews. I mean, I, I, I should say, I'm thank you for coming on. I'm really glad that you uh, agreed to do the interview, but I'm sure you've got to be getting tired of doing these interviews over and over again. Has it been exhausting? So last week, um, I had my first week where it wasn't exhausting. For it, Things just aligned so that even my, my class at Stanford, my, my weekly workshop got canceled. Before that, I was having at least one podcast or one interview of some kind uh, for, you know, interviews for magazines or, or whatever it may be uh, at least one a day. And then sometimes like three a day. And wow. yes, it's, it's really exhausting. And then when I wasn't doing those, I was hopping on a plane to get to whatever city or whatever, um, you know, book festival, whatever country for that matter. Um, and yeah, I mean, it, it, it's exhausting. And uh, <laughs> I might just be someone who doesn't have like, I, I am an, I'm an intro. Like I like people, but you know, I'm, a, I'm a borderline like ambivert. Like I, I do eventually need people, but being around people and talking to people usually isn't a thing that refills my energy. It usually takes a lot more than it, than it gives back. Um, and so it has been really, it's been a struggle to, to, to keep energized at times, at times, you know, it's also very exciting. And I have to remind myself, Hey, you, you asked for this, you, you, <laughs> you, um, prayed for the, you know, you did all the things every, yeah. every birthday candle you blew out <laughs> every, you know, shooting star you may have come across in the night sky. <laughs> you you've been wishing for this for, you know, as long as you can remember in a sense. And so, uh, you know, I, I try to also keep the <laughs> the attitude of gratitude, as they say, <laughs> um, along with that. But yeah, it's 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 been and, and but even I mean, going back to like the, the surprising, um, sometimes the conversation, the interview that you were excited about because it might be associated with the outlet that you always wanted to you know do an interview with. You know, sometimes those go great, and then sometimes those are like, oh, like I, that was that was kind of like draining. And then sometimes um, the conversations you that weren't on your radar are the ones that actually are like really energizing, and right. and, and you come away with like, oh, that was, you know, I, I didn't even know that uh, I was going to have such a a great conversation, and you right, come away right. like act actually energized from those, and so. Just you never know. There are lots of surprises in the in the whole um, process of, of doing the promo for the book. And to top it all off, you're in a PhD program right now at USC. So how are you balancing all this? Being a writer, being a a student, being a promoter of your work. <laughs> I'm, I'm not. I'm not balancing <laughs> really, honestly. So from my first year, I moved up to to Oakland to do the Stegner Fellowship, which 
you know the the main demands is that you sh- or, or demand is that you show up for a, a weekly workshop. And so my first year I was here, I was still doing the uh, PhD um, and balancing some things, and also preparing for the the book to come out. And I would say with the the book promo was successful. Um, I would say everything I did for you know Stanford and the Segner was successful, <laughs> but the PhDing part was was really falling apart. So this last year, you know, academic year twenty twenty two twenty three, um, I've I've taken I'm on leave technically okay. from from USC uh, because there's you know I, if I'm going to do a thing I like to do it well and otherwise like even if I know I'm I'm kind of not doing it well and as part of the plan. Uh, that thing is still going to take up a lot of brain space that I could be using elsewhere. And so, yeah, once I finish at Stanford in June, I'll be freed up to return to PhDing. <laughs> um, and then, you know, writing is is another struggle. I mean, I'm, I've, I've been glad to have the Stanford workshop to, again, give me those deadlines so that I can um, be forced to write something new or or even at times bring back earlier stories and seeing whether or not I can revise them into something worthwhile. And still, you know, it's, it's, it's a struggle. And the thing that maybe they do tell you, maybe they don't about putting a book out is it's that year is it's a full-time job. Um, and so if you already have a full-time job or if you're in some other kind of program where you have other responsibilities, you know, uh, I, my advice to people who are you know further along in the process and looking at actually putting the book out, actually publishing a book is like clear as much off your schedule as possible because like your book is your job and it's your number one job. And (laughs) um, if you want it to go well, like it should be. And, and, and that's, that's my, my advice for the, the the people who are further along. Well, I, again, really appreciate you taking the time to come by. It's been really great getting your insight on the book, which I absolutely loved, and then getting some of your advice on publishing and your experience and in, in, um, all these different writing communities. It's, it's been really great chatting with you and I appreciate it. Yeah, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Thanks for having me. Uh, I look forward to watching more uh, more of your episodes. I, I, I was peeking into some of them and I, I've, I've been getting like really this weird feeling of retrospective advice that I was like, oh yeah, like <laughs> that would have been really great like eight years ago. <laughs> yeah. Well, our lucky listeners uh, got a bunch of good advice today. So thanks again. Mm -hmm.